everyone. This is Jeffrey Care. I'm back with another installment of the News of the Month series on the Care Reviews podcast. This is where I talk about a few different entertainment news stories that feel important and or interesting to me. Each of the stories you'll be hearing me talk about have been divided into four separate categories. The first set of news stories is about the Oscars. For the first time since 1988, next year's Oscars will be taking place in April. After this past year's ceremony took place earlier in the month of February, next year's was originally scheduled to go back to the end of the month on February 28th. However, due to all of these ongoing cases of the coronavirus, the Academy decided to delay the telecast, hoping that everything will be back to normal by then. So next year's Oscars will now be taking place on April 25th, 2021. Not only that, but the Academy has also extended the eligibility period. Films that will be eligible for next year's awards will need to be released from January 1st, 2020 through February 28th, 2021. Not to mention that this delay has also changed the entire schedule for the 2020-21 award season. The Golden Globes will now be held on February 28th. The Critics' Choice Awards will be taking place on March 7th. The Screen Actors Guild Awards will be held on March 14th, and the British Academy Awards, otherwise known as BAFTA, will be taking place on April 11th. While it's great that we'll be getting a much longer season next year to make up for the truncated one we've just gone through, there are a number of people out there who are questioning the extended eligibility period. After all, the Oscars are supposed to be a celebration of a specific year in film. Then again, there's the question of how much of the movies that are planning to come out at the end of the year actually will. Everyone's still waiting for the announcement of when a majority of movie theaters will open back up to the public. Although the Academy announced a couple months ago that films that are exclusively streaming can be eligible next year only on the condition that they were intending to be released theatrically, there's a number of movies that are meant to be experienced in the theater first. So we'll see what happens within the next few months. Though prior to that news, there was something else that was actually very exciting. For those who may or may not remember, on June 24th, 2009, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced that in an attempt to revitalize interests surrounding the awards, the 2010 ceremony would feature 10 Best Picture nominees instead of 5. As a result, we not only got to see more movies in contention, but also genuine box office hits like Avatar, Black Swan, The Blind Side, District 9, Inception, Inglorious Bastards, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Up. Not to mention that several smaller indies that normally would have never made it into a field of five like an education, The Kids Are Alright, A Series Man, and Winter's Bone became Best Picture nominees. Though after two years, there have been reports of Academy members complaining about how they can't find 10 movies they found worthy in a particular year. So on June 14th, 2011, it was announced that the 2012 ceremony would feature between 5 and 10 Best Picture nominees depending on voting results as opposed to a set number of nominees. Since then, it's been harder for genuine box office hits and smaller indies to get into Best Picture on a sliding scale. Though there have been exceptions with hits like Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, Get Out, Black Panther, and Joker, as well as indies like Amour and Beasts of the Southern Wild. However, it was recently announced that starting with 
the 94th Oscars, which will be celebrating the films of 2021, the Academy will be going back to having a guaranteed 10 Best Picture nominees. Hallelujah! There's a number of movies that I can think of from this past decade that probably would have made it into Best Picture in a field of 10. Films like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Blue Jasmine, Foxcatcher, Carol, If Beale Street Could Talk, and The Two Popes probably suffered most from this sliding scale thing. While we're gonna have to wait one more year for the guaranteed 10 to come back, I'm still very excited that it'll be coming back nonetheless. This next set of news stories involves two projects that are currently in the works at Universal Pictures that are set to be produced by Mark Platt. The first of which is a film adaptation of the hit Broadway musical Dear Evan Hansen. This project was actually announced back in November of 2018. Book writer Stephen Levinson is writing the screenplay, while Stephen Chabosky, who is the author of The Perks of Being a Wallflower, as well as the writer and director of its 2012 film adaptation, is currently set to direct. Yet the latest news is that Caitlin Deaver, who's a rising star with performances from last year on the big screen in the Olivia Wilde-directed comedy Booksmart and on the small screen in the Netflix miniseries Unbelievable, is in talks to star Ezo Murphy. When I first saw that news, I wondered whether or not she could sing. So after having done some research, I ended up finding a few videos on YouTube of her singing. Not only did I think she sounded good, but I can definitely hear her voice working for Zoe's songs from the show. But it's not just that, because according to reports, Mark Platt's son, actor Ben Platt, who originated the title character on Broadway and won universal acclaim as well as countless accolades for it, is expected to reprise his role. Though there are people out there questioning whether or not he could be able to convincingly play a high school student on film at this point, given that he's almost 27 years old, let me remind you all that we've seen actors in their mid-twenties play high school students before. I haven't seen Ben Platt's Netflix series, The Politician, but I know he at least played a high school student in the first season. In fact, he was recently interviewed by Jimmy Fallon and was asked about the rumors of him starring in the movie. Ben responded that Universal really wants to make the film, but it's kind of a toss-up at this point based on if it could be done safely and get it together in time. He also mentions that some of us are getting a little long in the tooth, so I think it's like kind of a now or never kind of thing. I'm hopeful that it can come together and we can find a safe way to do it. As of now, it could really go either way, but I think it can be a beautiful thing still. I will say that if Ben Platt does star in the movie and if they end up using the aging technology on him for this, they might as well nickname the film The Curious Case of Evan Hansen. Meanwhile, it was recently announced that Universal Pictures is developing a live-action animated hybrid film adaptation of The Magic School Bus that's set to be produced by Mark Platt and Elizabeth Banks, who is set to star as Miss Frizzle. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the property, The Magic School Bus started out as a series of children's books written by Joanna Cole and illustrated by Bruce Deegan. They were adapted into an animated television series that ran for four seasons on PBS in the 1990s, which itself spawned a sequel series that ran for two seasons on Netflix a couple years ago. As for my thoughts on the news, I'm not sure if it's such a good idea. On the one hand, a movie seems like a good opportunity to introduce something like the Magic School Bus to a whole new generation of kids. 
On the other hand, I think that's a property that should just stay animated because I can never see it working in live action. I think if you're going to do a live action adaptation of any property that previously worked pretty well as a cartoon, what should really be taken into account is if you could picture the story itself in real life which has pretty much been the problem a lot of live-action films based on cartoons have faced. Then again, only time will tell if this ends up being another previously announced movie that never goes anywhere or not. This next set of news stories involves the award-winning mega producer, Scott Rudin, and some Broadway productions he's planning for next year. But before I get to them, I should update those who may or may not have already heard that the Broadway shutdown has extended once again. This time, it's currently set to expire on January 3rd, 2021. Whether or not it actually will, that of course remains to be seen. But in any case, one of the Broadway productions Scott Rudin is planning to bring in is, of course, an eagerly anticipated revival of The Music Man starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. The show was previously set to start performances in September. However, the production has now been postponed to the spring of next year. When I had actor, playwrights, director, theater critic, and historian Ron Fassler on the show a couple months ago, we talked about the continuous extensions of the Broadway shutdown. He even mentioned this possibility. What if the Music Man doesn't come in? There is that scenario. It could happen. I've read that as of now, they're still planning to open the fall, but the pandemic keeps on extending. I could see them at least postponing for the time being. Yeah, you never know. Hugh Jackman, you know, might just decide, you know, guys, I think I better make a movie. I put aside this year to do this show, and now it's not the same year I thought it was going to be. I mean, I'm just saying, things happen, so we don't know. Luckily, the start date for performances has been rescheduled. Most recently, it was announced that Scott Rudin will be bringing Thornton Wilder's classic 1938 play, Our Town, back to Broadway next year. The work was last seen on the main stem in 2003 with a production that marked the final Broadway appearance and only Tony nomination for Paul Newman. This new revival will be starring Dustin Hoffman in his first Broadway outing since his Tony nominated turn as Shylock in the 1990 revival of The Merchant of Venice and directed by Bartlett Shear. I've known of the play Our Town for years, but I've never seen nor read it. Though looking at how long it's been since the work was last produced on Broadway, it's probably now due for a brand new production. As for the news of Dustin Hoffman, that casting should really make this an event. Though given that he hasn't been on Broadway in like 30 years or so, I do wonder how he'll be able to keep up with performing 8 times a week, especially since he's almost 83 years old. With that being said, if he ends up needing any help remembering lines during a show, it'll at least be more excusable for a man his age as opposed to middle-aged actors like Bruce Willis and Forrest Whitaker who didn't even bother learning their damn lines when they both made their Broadway debuts separately a few years ago. Willis wore an earpiece during performances of Misery, while Whitaker relied on someone backstage during performances of Huey. Not to mention that when 75-year-old Al Pacino was last seen on Broadway in David Mamet's China Doll back in 2015, a lot of attention was made to how he was relying on not only an earpiece, but also teleprompters embedded into the set. 
However, the announcement of Dustin Hoffman returning to Broadway has raised several eyebrows on social media, with many people pointing out the multiple allegations of sexual assault he received back in 2017, one of which included exposing himself to a 16-year-old in a hotel room. According to Forbes, several of Dustin Hoffman's allegations stem from his previous Broadway outings, which included groping female colleagues backstage while they were trying to listen for their entrance cues. This wouldn't be the first time Scott Rudin came under fire for casting a proven sexual harasser in a key role in one of his Broadway productions. Most recently, as he was getting a revival of West Side Story up and running, people were literally protesting it out in the streets because of the casting of Amar Ramassar as Bernardo. Amar was previously fired from the New York City Ballet after getting caught sharing sexually explicit photos of a female dancer. Though he was eventually reinstated after a union arbitrator ruled against the firing. When the revival of West Side Story was profiled on 60 Minutes earlier this year, Scott Rudin was asked about Amar's allegation, and he responded, I'm not denying what he did was really stupid, but I'm not gonna fire him. Then again, this kind of reminds me of the 2018 Oscar season, where many people on Twitter kept protesting Bohemian Rhapsody for various reasons, one of which included the sexual misconduct allegations of its credited director, Brian Singer. I said credited because Singer ended up getting fired shortly before principal photography wrapped up for his absences and clashes with the cast and crew. So Dexter Fletcher, who went on to direct Rocket's Man last year, was brought on board to complete the film. Though according to the Directors Guild of America, only one director can be credited for a film, and it ended up being Brian Singer given that he hired the cast, crew, and filmed most of the movie. However, Dexter Fletcher did receive credit as executive producer as a way to acknowledge his overall contributions in completing it. But back to the protest. Hundreds of people on Twitter kept trying to take Bohemian Rhapsody down, yet people within the industry, many of whom are members of the Motion Picture Academy, pretty much said in response, Don't tell me what to do! So in the end, Bohemian Rhapsody received five Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, and won four awards for Best Actor, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. While there are a number of people out there, myself included, who can separate the arts from the artist, there's another number of people who can't. As for whether or not we should expect people to protest Dustin Hoffman appearing on Broadway out in the streets, we'll see. Though if this controversy ends up really taking off, Scott Rudin better be ready to have Christopher Plummer on standby to replace Dustin. For our final subject, I'd like to take this moment to remember three industry veterans we've lost within this past month. Actor Ian Holm died of Parkinson's disease on June 19th at the age of 88. He was best known for his roles on the big screen, such as Ash in 1979's Alien, Sam Musabini in 1981's Chariots of Fire, which earned him an Oscar nomination, Mr. Kurtzman in 1985's Brazil, and Bilbo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I should point out that he also actually appeared on Broadway once back in 1967 as Lenny in the original production of Harold Pinter's The Homecoming. He even won a Tony Award for his performance, which just so happened to have been the first award of the night presented on the very first ceremony that was broadcast on national television. In his acceptance speech, he said, Ladies and gentlemen, this means that I can take home to England with me two very valuable objects from the United States. 
One brand new All-American son, Barnaby, born February the 20th, New York City, 1967. And now one brand new All-American Award, Tony, born 26th of March, 1967. This was very unfortunate timing because I had actually watched The Sweet Hereafter, which he starred in on Amazon Prime two days before he died. And Peter Jackson, who directed Ian Holm in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies, posted quite a moving tribute to him on Facebook, which you can find a link to in the episode notes. Filmmaker Joel Schumacher died from cancer on June 22nd at the age of 80. He was the director behind several films such as 1985's St. Elmo's Fire, 1987's The Lost Boys, 1994's The Client, and 1996's A Time to Kill as well as other movies such as 1995's Batman Forever, 1997's Batman and Robin, 2004's The Phantom of the Opera, and 2007's The Number 23. His most recent directing credits included two episodes of the first season of House of Cards back in 2013. While his overall track record was hit or miss, there was no doubt that whenever he made a movie, he certainly had his stamp all over it. 11-time Emmy-winning comedy legend Carl Reiner died of natural causes on June 29th at the age of 98. In the 1950s, he had started out on television working with Sid Caesar on your show of shows and Caesar's Hour not only as an actor, but he also contributed sketch material for both of them. Reiner had also formed a long-running comedy act with Mel Brooks titled The 2,000-Year-Old Man. In the 1960s, he became best known as the creator, producer, and writer of The Dick Van Dyke Show, which he also acted on as well. This was very unfortunate timing because I had actually watched The Jerk, which was one of many films he directed, on Amazon Prime eight days before he died. My condolences definitely go out to all of their families. So that just about does it for the news of this month. I will be back on August 3rd to discuss any bits of entertainment news stories that I found interesting and or important from July. If you like what you've heard here, please subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. Feel free to rate and or review this show on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.net. You can also find it on Twitter at Care Reviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all later. Music